Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. We're on the fifth episode in our study of Revelation and the politics of Jesus. In this episode, I want to slow down and look at what Charles Taylor calls the age of anxiety and how it's culminated in the use of the politics of fear. How do we as Christians who want to live out the politics of Jesus interact with the politics of fear? And what vision does Revelation offer about how to live in the midst of upheavals of judgment we find on the world around us? I think there's wisdom here for how Christians might protest well and revise how we envision the power of prayer as we witness in hope to the politics of fear. So let's dive in. this journey in Revelation where we found John addressing the churches in Asia by offering them these visions he received from Jesus. In episode 3, we talked about the vision of the Lamb on the throne in Revelation 4-5. And in episode 4, we talked about Revelation 6-7, where Jesus begins to break the seals, and with every seal broken, new judgments are unleashed. Yet these judgments are not to overwhelm us, because the saints are those who stand in witness to the Word and to the Lamb offering their own lives in non-retaliation, so that in the end, they can be clothed in white and will be vindicated by Jesus their King. It's all very mysterious and overwhelming, if we're being honest. And yet, when you start to track the flow of Revelation, there is something quite beautiful and moving about all of it. On the one hand, it's vivid and concrete. The four horsemen of judgment sounded a lot like four waves of judgment that would roll through the Roman Empire, or might one day roll across our own global landscape. Yet there is also something here that's open-ended, even symbolic. The fifth seal in which the souls of the saints gathered under the altar, crying out to God for salvation, speaks of this ongoing and eternal struggle, this heaving of the world that from age to age endures as Christians cry out to God as we look for and long for his redemption to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's almost as if the four horsemen do seem to ceaselessly roam, even now across our globe, in the various wars and diseases and conflicts that spring up over and over and over again. So that brings us in this episode to Revelation 8 to 11, one of the largest swaths of text we're going to look at that will involve the judgments of the trumpets, another scroll, and those infamous two witnesses. We're going to cover it all. But as we do, I once again want to surface one of the major threads, really the argument I've been making in this series. My argument is this. One of the main things Revelation wants to talk about is politics. The church was trying to navigate the political pressures of Rome, and every generation has to face these new policies, the new constrictions, the new pressures that Caesar or whoever else is on the throne puts on the Christian community. Sometimes it looks like economic incentive to affirm the politics of Caesar. Sometimes it looks like a blended accommodation where everybody gives a little to take a little politically. Or sometimes it looks like trying to break the will of Christians when it comes to their distinctive values and visions. So in this political hotbed, both in John's day and now in our own, the book of Revelation keeps giving these calls to endure, to overcome, and to live out the politics of Jesus. 
which I've been arguing today looks like fasting and resistance to capitalism, looks like multicultural worship and resistance to racism, and looks like non-retaliation and resistance to partisan infighting. Perhaps you could summarize these practices as describing what it looks like to live as royal priests in whatever job, neighborhood, communities, or cities we find ourselves in. All this to say, today I want to talk about prayer and protesting in response to the politics of fear. So to kick us off, I want to talk about the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor and this fascinating book he wrote called The Secular Age. Charles Taylor is one of those big picture thinkers that I love. He doesn't get stuck in details. Instead, he likes to step back and survey the canvas of the political and religious times we find ourselves in. And what's so interesting about this book is the question Taylor starts with. He asks, how is it that 500 years ago, if you talk to anybody from the highly educated down to your average person on the street, everybody 500 years ago would have said they believed in God. But how is it that now, just 500 years later, it feels like if you talk to a professor, or even if you talk to your average person on the street, it feels like almost no one believes in God. Again, Taylor's not trying to get stuck in the details here. He's interested in this big picture shift. What had to happen, he wonders, that would allow for a whole society to shift from being basically God-believing to being basically not God-believing? And what would the results of such a shift be? From the intrigue of his question, Taylor is going to offer a number of profound insights. The Enlightenment, he notes, shifted us from what he calls a transcendent frame, where all of life, including our own, was understood in its relationship to God, to community, to others, to now, in the secular age, what he would call the imminent frame, the sense in which all of life, including ourselves, is only understood in relationship to ourselves our own individual subjective experiences. If you're tracking with me and with Charles Taylor here, this is a huge shift. In fact, while there have been almost innumerable benefits to all that has come on the other side of the Enlightenment, I mean, think about our technologies, our longer life, our better health. What Taylor zeroes in on is how significantly this shift has put pressure on each individual person, subjectively in their interior being, to come up with their own purpose, their own values, and their own meaning in the world. Before, you may have been less free, but your values, your purpose, and security were all handed down to you by your community. They were established and secure because of your relationship to God. But now, in the secular age with our imminent frame, you and you alone must determine your job, your class, your relationships, your status, your marriage, your gender, your calling, and your meaning in the world. With all this pressure, inevitably, Taylor believes, the result was what he describes as the age of anxiety. Look, he says, at all the cultural revolutions of the 1960s, as people were finally free to throw off the bonds of previously oppressive forces, yet then found themselves in freedom, trying to pick up the pieces post-revolution of the world they were now left to inhabit and create for themselves. Look at the undercurrents of countercultural trends from punk to R&B to horror rock. Look at the growing statistics on mental health, depression, suicide. One doesn't have to look far to realize that while the opportunity for freedom of self-expression is great, perhaps greater than it's ever been in human history, the cost has been an immense burden on each individual to map in their own imminent frame what meaning is in the world. 
And the result has been an intense and perhaps even growing anxiety about how each of us in our own interior state are meant to navigate this overwhelming world we find ourselves in. Which leads us back to politics. If Charles Taylor is right that we live in an age of anxiety, how do politics sway the masses? What weapon does politics use on both sides of the aisle to get the support they need, to energize their base, and to tap into the deepest part of their constituents' heart? Politics use fear. In 2018, Frank Ferretti, a leading British sociologist, released a book called How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. In this book, Ferretti surveys the mechanisms at fear at work in our politics, in our social media, in our news reports, and in our conversations with our neighbors. Fear is associated with the big picture politics we'd expect. Back in the 1960s and 70s, fear was easy to spot. It was the fear of communism and Russia during the Cold War. It eventually in the 2000s was the fear of terrorism, which would drive us into Afghanistan and the far more controversial drive into Iraq and Iran. But today, fear still undergirds the news stories you hear, whether it be discussions of China and Russia today, all the way over to immigration and refugee fears on the right which are matched by fears of climate change and fears of the demagogue, oligarchy, Republican Party on the left. Yet fear can be subtle too. Fear connects whether we will have enough for our retirements, to vote on tax hikes. Fear pushes us on Medicare and universal health care. Fear points us to the violence in the streets from protest, matched by the violence from police officers to minorities. If you think back to this past election, I saw ad campaigns warning me of economic disaster if I would vote for Joe Biden, matched by ad campaigns that warned me of scientific disaster if I would re-elect Donald Trump. Fear is driving our anxiety. It heightens our awareness of all that could go wrong, while always subtly pointing us to look towards our politician or our party for the salvation we desire. Eventually, we get so used to fear we start building interior walls of defense, acknowledging, yes, there are some weaknesses in our political camp, but have you seen the greater evils waiting out there if the other party were to come to power? Our anxiety has resulted in a politics of fear, in which both the left and the right use fear to drive their agenda and heighten concerns about the other. And as we've seen over and over again, eventually the heightened fears seem to spill out into violence. Eventually, when you're being told you're being threatened for so long, you have to strike back. Whether it was the Pizzagate scandal, or the shooting of police officers, or protests on the street, violence spills from an overwhelming sense that the politics of fear have generated in us that our anxiety is justified and our lives are being threatened. As we return to our passage in Revelation, you're going to see the politics of fear are at play in Rome, even as they're at play today. Yet the good news is that the Bible is going to offer us a powerful counter vision to the politics of fear. Instead of unknown, the future is secured in the vision John rolls out, and the guiding hand of God is directing and even redirecting those forces that seem to be demonic, chaotic, and full of judgment. But even more, our passage today quite clearly will give us a political role to play in an age of anxiety driven by the politics of fear. So let's turn to Revelation 8. This is going to be verses 1 to 5. This is what it says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So as we've been going through the previous seals of judgment, the seventh seal will culminate in silence for half an hour. It's an eerie, almost jarring function of the seventh seal. Yet I think there are two reasons for it. First, the silence that we find in heaven is going to create space for the trumpet blasts that are soon to come. Judgment is going to be followed by more judgment. But two, this silent space is going to emphasize that God is in fact listening to the prayers of the saints that are going to be described as rising up to heaven. So picture it, silence for 30 full minutes in heaven as angels hover over their trumpets and as God listens to the prayers rising up to the throne. We're intriguingly told that another angel appears who is said to stand at the altar carrying a golden censer. So what is a golden censer? Well, back in the Old Testament worship, the censer would be a bowl filled with live coals from the altar of burnt offerings. And priests were instructed to take the censer into the sanctuary and throw incense on the coals, causing a cloud of smoke to rise and fragrance to fill the space. If you've ever seen incense before, it bursts forth with this thick gray smoke, and it does fill any room it finds itself in. This incense billowing out in the sanctuary would have evoked the holy presence of God every time the room filled with the smells of the incense. Yet John has now twice made a different point in his use of incense. For John, incense is the prayer of the saints, and this incense is rising before God. I don't think John is talking merely symbolic or metaphorical terms here. Instead, what John is giving us is a revelation of what actually happens in heaven when the saints cry out to God. Track with him here. When we pray, John is saying, our prayers gather like incense placed on the coals. And as they burn, they fill the throne room of God with a thick cloud and a pleasing aroma. And both this cloud and the aroma is going to bring our requests perpetually forward to the mind of God. Yet here's where it gets really interesting. It is those prayers that cause and are connected to what happens in verse 5. This is what verse 5 says. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Yes, you heard that correctly. It is a stunning verse. Revelation is in fact suggesting that the prayers of the saints become part of the response that shakes the earth. It's extraordinary, almost too unbelievable in our secular age, pressed in by the imminent frame where God is pushed out of the picture to be true. Yet it is insistently the vision of revelation in all of scripture. God hears the cries of his people. He gathers them up until the appointed time and then responds in ways both obvious and subtle, in both judgment and mercy. Yet God always responds. In an age of anxiety dictated to by the politics of fear, the saints are called to insistently pray. 
confident that their prayers are being gathered before the throne in heaven, that these prayers are in fact a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering before the Lord, and that it is our prayers gathered together, which in some mysterious way we cannot begin to understand, interact with, or perhaps even cause God to move in the world. So I want to pause for just a second for you to consider the politics of this moment. Is it possible that Revelation is suggesting prayers are actually gathered before the throne? Is it possible that prayers are, in fact, the most important and potent political force the church has to stir God to action? Is it possible that this actually is the consistent scriptural witness? That while so many of us, myself included, often grow distracted with our personal problems in prayer, that instead part of our political calling is actually to gather together requests of our community in order to intercede before the throne, to fill the throne with that fragrant aroma until the Lord is so moved that he sends his angel to tip the censer out and enact the radical changes we've been praying for on the earth. I'll return to this in our political practice at the close. Yet what if our prayers were more radically powerful than any other political action we could do on our own? This, I realize, is quite significant. Yet track even further now as the image progresses. In the book of Exodus, the cry of the oppressed people who are suffering under the slavery of Egypt is actually is depicted as stirring God to action. We're told specifically in Exodus chapter 2, in a beautifully poignant verse, that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. God saw and God knew. The logic of Exodus is that as the cries have been gathered up of the oppressed, they now press God to remember, to act upon his covenant. And it is in response to these cries that God will in fact act, specifically in Exodus by pouring out the ten plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh's leadership. As if to reinforce this connection, what's fascinating is that the seven trumpets we're about to experience will have some eerie overlays with the ten plagues that are poured out on Egypt. So let's look at Revelation 8, 6-7 and the beginning of these trumpets. This is what it says. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Much as the seals we previously encountered are connected to the scroll, which contains something about God's working in the world and the inheritance of the saints, now the trumpets are meant to bring to mind the heralded arrival of a great king. And each trumpet is meant to signal that the approach of this king is drawing near. In this first trumpet, we're told hail and fire mixed with blood is thrown upon the earth. And as a result, a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees and all green grass was burned up. There's sort of this swirling combination of several Egyptian plagues, each of which would have been terrifying in the ancient world. It continues to terrify us today, as in America, when the wildfires on the West Coast offer us apocalyptic skies, homes destroyed, and this inevitable sense of a loss of control that the natural world has turned on us. Imagine what hail, fire mixed with blood and thrown upon the earth would do to you in the politics of fear. Yet this first trumpet is followed by the second. 
Revelation 8, 8-9 says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This second trumpet likely refers to a volcano, whose eruption devastates the sea and the shipping trade, which Rome would have cared mightily about. This is one of those fascinating ones, where anyone with Roman history might remember Pompeii, the city destroyed by the erupting Mount Vesuvius, which, if Revelation was written in 60 AD, would have eerily anticipated the event, which happened in 79 AD. However, if Revelation was written in the 90 ADs, as I think it was, the haunting memory of Pompeii would have come to mind and caused dread about what future judgment this second trumpet could enact. I remember as a child watching Mount St. Helen erupt and being filled with this sense of awe and wonder at the power of nature to remake the world around it. This trumpet reminds even the strength of Rome, the devastating judgment a volcano can hold in wiping out the sea and the economies dependent on them. The third trumpet continues. This is verse 10 to 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So Wormwood is technically a plant that does have medicinal values and can be used today in tea, but it is known for being extremely bitter. What's more interesting theologically is that this wormwood star seems to be a reversal of when God purifies the bitter waters of Mara in Exodus 15. The bitterness of wormwood speaks not only to more judgment, but also the tainting effect of sin to ruin otherwise clean water. As these judgments roll, we continue to see a creation that has collapsed back in on itself, a world that is almost rolling in reverse judgment back on a humanity that has tainted and corrupted the earth. On to the fourth trumpet, this one in Revelation 8, verse 12. Much like the ninth plague over Egypt that darkens the sky, this trumpet will remove sun, moon, and stars. Verse 12 says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This trumpet leaves a third of the world in darkness, the extended night reflecting to the world its own spiritual state. As a result of this trumpet, we're told at the end of chapter 8, an eagle, perhaps a symbol of Rome or perhaps a vulture circling humanity in judgment, is going to cry out these words, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now to pause briefly to reflect on the significance of these judgments, I cannot fully tell you how concretely these judgments will happen. I can see how they would have been experienced in the ancient world as Christians navigated the Roman Empire. I can see their symbolic value as Christians navigate natural disasters, bubonic plagues, and the upheaval of creation today. I can see in the future how these trumpets might be paralleled by events yet to occur. Yet what's more interesting to me theologically at this point is that these judgments consistently take place for the one-third. It was common in war for rulers like Caesar to execute judgment on a rebellious nation by ordering that two-thirds of the crops, two-thirds of the livestock, or even sometimes two-thirds of the population be wiped out. 
It was generally perceived that to destroy everything would be egregious and overzealous, but to destroy two-thirds would offer such complete destruction that while the populations and livestock endured, no one would ever be able to resist your rule again. Yet God here repeatedly strikes judgment on only one-third. It's not even the majority. It's not even what God is entitled to in his judgment of a humanity that has rebelled against him. And most commentators point out that they think there would have been a perceptible sense here of mercy, almost surprising mercy, to an ancient audience who knew dictators and rulers were allowed to enact two-thirds judgment when they were conquering their enemies. You would almost undeniably be struck at the kindness and leniency of a king who enacts judgments but still allows two-thirds of his subject being subdued to endure. God is clearly not bent on destruction for destruction's sake, but desires repentance. God longs for response to the woes and judgments that are being enacted. So we're moving through a lot of text in this episode, but I want to turn now to Revelation 9, verses 1 to 2. This is what it says. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So chapter 9 has now moved us to the fifth trumpet, which describes as a star fallen from heaven to earth that's given this key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Your first question very logically might be, who is this star and what is this pit that the star rules over? But that question is quickly followed by another as the strangeness continues in verses 3 to 6. This is what it says. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Okay, so what is happening here? Well, two pieces of background get us started. In John's day, there was a belief in Hades or an abyss where souls were stored after they died. And the common pagan conception was that though it was mysterious and hidden, this abyss was an actual geographic location that in theory you could find. So there is quite a literal force here that John was not just describing something abstract and spiritual, but confirming that this abyss, which is located in the earth, is actually being led by a ruler. Second, when he says he sees a star fall from the sky, it's interesting to note the contrast with the widely known story that when Julius Caesar died, his son claimed that a star had shot up across the sky and that this was the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to his place among the gods, which of course would make his son and all future sons the son of a god. Yet in John's vision, the star descends. Perhaps this star is a setup for the Antichrist. Perhaps it's a play on the Anti-Caesar that will show up again in descriptions of the beast, or perhaps this is Satan himself, who now rules over the demonic locusts that will come charging out of the abyss. But what are these locusts? Are they actual locusts? Are they demonic forces? Or are they something else? This fifth trumpet gets into the contested territory of the prophet Joel, 
who seems to go back and forth himself in his prophecies of judgment against Israel. At one time, Joel, in his prophecy, seems to be describing an actual plague of locusts that are about to descend on the nation of Israel and wipe out their economy. Yet at other times in Joel, the same plague seems to describe a massive army of Persians who will soon be invading Israel. The same sort of back and forth and blended imagery is happening here in the fifth trumpet, as John continues describing the locusts in verse 7 onward, with descriptions like horses prepared for battle, describing their heads as wearing what looks like crowns of gold, and later saying that they have tails and stings like scorpions. Now here's where things get crazy. I mentioned in an earlier episode that one of the great threats to Rome were the Parthians, who occupy what is now modern-day Iran, and were known for being particularly good horsemen, who terrified and scattered opposing armies with their particularly strong archery skills. In fact, Parthians were known for even being able to ride and shoot backwards. Thus, many commentators have pointed out the description of the locusts and their stings sound an awful lot like what a Roman would imagine an invading Parthian army would look like if it had come to offer God's judgment. Now, where this gets even more crazy is that in the sixth trumpet, we're told four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, when they are released, are going to enact a killing of a third of mankind. This seems to enact some great force being unleashed by the Euphrates River, which was exactly the boundary marker between Rome and the Parthian Empire. Whenever the Parthians were going to attack Rome, they would always attack by crossing the Euphrates and thus beginning to unleash torment on the earthly populace of Rome. Just in case we're not tracking, John ends chapter 9 by describing the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, for the power of the horses is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. However, chapter 9 concludes by noting that though so many were killed, the rest of humanity still did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. So just in case you're thoroughly confused about what Revelation 9 is suggesting, let me join you in your confusion by asking these questions. Is John saying in this vision that a literal third of humanity will be attacked by demon locusts that somehow ride horses, that team up with angels, and that wipe out a third of humanity in the final days? Perhaps. Or is John prophesying that an army like the Parthians is going to rise up and be released with all the terror and power of a demonic host of locusts to spew wrath, judgment, and violence across the Roman Empire of humanity in whatever political climate this judgment finds itself taking place? Perhaps. I think we're getting closer to what John is saying, but these things are hard to discern. If, as with the other trumpets, I could bring this closer to home, I would note some contemporary intrigue. The very power of fear that operated in the Roman Empire operates just as much in our politics today. Romans feared the Parthians. They represented all that was foreign and strange and different to the highly regimented Roman legions. If the Parthians were to invade, all of Rome would suffer and be terrified. But Christians already were suffering in Rome. And so, as John is describing this movement of God in judgment, God takes the very force that Romans already feared, and he allows that force to be unleashed with devastating cost. If I were to make the leap of a parallel to today, 
Which I might add, the claim that this is exactly what Revelation 9 is trying to say is not what I'm getting at. I would note that there may be a sense in which our society will be given over to that which we most fear. Think perhaps about conservatives. Perhaps we will be given over in the realization of a diversified, non-binary, non-traditional society in which open borders, the pursuit of progressive policies, and the radical breakdown of traditional values results in the very collapse of society that conservatives most fear. Or perhaps for progressives, it might be the realization of a shifting climate that spins our economic machine off its axis, finds our world damaged beyond repair, and the nationalistic xenophobic tendencies of majority rule close down borders with demagogues ruling over semi-totalitarian states that war with each other over limited resources. You know, as I say both scenarios out loud, they seem far off and a little outlandish better suited for a sci-fi blockbuster than for guiding us how we should vote in the past election. But still, each contain real threats that do fuel our fears. And this is the moment when I would note that those reading John in his day might have laughed in derision at the apocalyptic scenario where Rome is overrun by the invading Parthian forces. Yet, with the hindsight of history, we know that Rome did, in fact, eventually fall. All empires will fall. And so in some sense, the fears we try to avoid are fears that by nature linger on the horizon and eventually must be confronted by Christians. So as with most of Revelation, I am politically humbled and forced to pause. Maybe our politics of fear are so effective because they sense what Revelation confirms. Of course we are afraid. There are many real threats in this world. There are many real dangers. It's very possible that these political images both parties have taught us to fear most may actually come true. Yet, Revelation is almost guiding us to ask, are you afraid of the right forces? If you lived in Rome and spent all your days fearing the possible invasion of the Parthians, are you fearing correctly? Have you placed your fear on the wrong concern? Do you fear these forces that are at work in the world more than you fear the God who has sent and controls these forces in his own plans of judgment? Or do you fear the forces at work in this world when you should fear the forces at work in your own heart, which God may give you over to if you do not seek him in repentance? For the overwhelming terrors that this scene confronts us with, and for perhaps the genuine distress that even Christians might have felt, contemplating a world in which a demonic locust army sweeps over the Euphrates and wipes out a third of the world in judgment. Even still, Revelation never leaves us without hope. So two final images are going to close out our reflection in this episode. I'm drawn to ask, what then are we supposed to do in a world of judgment that may in fact ironically confirm the very politics of fear that have been playing on our anxieties? How are Christians called to live in an age of anxiety dominated by these forces of the politics of fear. In chapter 10, John is going to see another vision of an angel, although this time we're told that this angel is carrying a little scroll. It's possible that this little scroll has words of encouragement written on it. Perhaps it's more revelation, or perhaps even the words John himself will soon write down are being given to him on this scroll. This is the beautiful chapter where John is then told to eat 
the scroll, and to prepare for prophecy through the words of the scroll that first will turn his stomach bitter, but then also will be sweet. Much more could be said about this chapter. Yet for now, I'll say this. Chapter 10 in Revelation beautifully offers us another picture of the burning word, a word that must be consumed, which at times may even taste bitter, while at other times will be incredibly sweet. Yet it is this book we must eat. It's this book that God offers to us in hope. Even though the judgments will continue to roll, John is given this little scroll to remind him that God is in charge and even now the politics of Jesus are preparing the way of the kingdom for its king. We are given this little scroll to eat and to be sustained with, even if at times it may taste bitter. Still, the words of this scroll are sweetness for us. It reminds us in the midst of our fears that not all is lost and that the end has not yet come. That's the first image. The second image comes in Revelation 11. John is going to turn mysteriously to the two witnesses, which have so often dominated end-time fascinations with the book of Revelation and has caused much speculation as to their identity. Yet I want to contend that if the little scroll is given to us as one of the tools for our encouragement as we face a world of fear, a world even of judgment, the image of the two witnesses is also given to us as a role which we ourselves are called to inhabit. This is from Revelation 11, 1 to 3. It says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. I'll be the first to admit, where we're about to walk is sticky interpretive territory. Questions abound, as with much of Revelation, as to whether John is talking about the past, the present, or the future, and if these images are intended to be symbols or concrete realities. So, for instance, is John talking about a future period, that is, a 42 months of tribulation, where the temple, having been rebuilt, is trampled by those who were never true worshipers? It's certainly possible. Or is John talking symbolically about a time, a time, and half a time, which is the phrase from Daniel that means the 1260 days, that speaks to the ongoing tribulation the church experiences even now in the world? This reading would suggest that John is describing an ongoing reality that relates to the church today. However, there is a third option. Interestingly, the great revolt of Israel that would culminate in the destruction of the temple began in 66 AD and would end in 70 AD, roughly 42 months or 1260 days from its start. That is certainly intriguing. But why would John be describing something that had already happened? And what evidence is there of two witnesses in Jerusalem during that time? Like I said, this is tricky and confusing interpretive territory. The next verse gives us more context. This is Revelation 11.4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the lords of the earth. So it's interesting that the book of Zechariah is the only place in the Old Testament where olive trees and lampstands are mentioned together. And there they seem to be referring to the historical figures of Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, and Joshua, the high priest, who worked together to reestablish God's people in Jerusalem. Yet the description of these prophets continues in the following verse it says, And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall, 
and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Clearly, not Zerubbabel and Joshua, but here allusions abound to Elijah, who stopped rain and called fire down from heaven, and Moses, who turned water to blood and called the plagues down on Egypt. So are these witnesses like Zerubbabel and Joshua? Or are these witnesses like Elijah and Moses? Or are they something different? Even stranger, verse 7 is going to say, When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. They will remain for three and a half days, but after that time, a breath of life from God will enter them, and they will stand on their feet, and a voice will say, Come up here. And as they went up to heaven, a great earthquake will cause a tenth of the city to fall, and 7,000 people will be killed. As you can see, this passage is one of those head scratchers in Revelation. There's a part of me that wants to think John is prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem here, and that these two witnesses are those he anticipates coming to the city streets and prophesying before its collapse. But the inclusion of a resurrection makes any literal interpretation impossible to press in 70 AD. You can understand then why end-time junkies get excitable at this passage, that they think John might be saying that Elijah and Moses will come back, or perhaps two witnesses like them, to prophesy in the future end times, demonstrating fantastic miracles. That certainly is possible, but with many such speculative imaginings, I don't know what such an interpretation offers to us as the church today, besides a very specific, very concrete future event that still seems immensely ambiguous. That's why for the purposes of this episode, I reflect with you, as some interpreters have, on the possibility that though John describes two witnesses, he leaves the identity of these witnesses open, and he does so to invite us to imagine ourselves as the witnesses he describes. Commentators point out that Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. The resurrection of the witnesses, as fantastic as it sounds, is in fact the resurrection hope that every saint will experience. Now, my point is not to say that this interpretation solves the very mysterious details of this passage. In fact, if you really press me, I would probably concede John is anticipating two specific witnesses holding the function in Jerusalem he described. I lean literal whenever I can in interpreting the Bible. But because the word of God is offered to us, and because we've been told of the saints whose prayers fill the throne room of God, and because chapter 11 is going to once again end in worship, a worship we're invited to participate in, I don't think theologically we're off base here to ask how the description of these witnesses might be offered to us as part of our own calling to witness to God in the turbulent trials of our current political moment. Which leads us to the concrete, embodied, and communal politics for this episode. As you recall, each episode in this series, I've been trying to take Revelation and the politics of Jesus seriously and wonder how this mysterious book could be applied to the present in public actions for the good of our cities and communities that we find ourselves in. So this episode, one which I acknowledge is dark and full of judgment and wrath, even full of the potential for fear, still I think has a call of hope, particularly in those prayers of the saints, and particularly in those two witnesses who stand together as olive trees wherever they find themselves 
to protest the injustices of the politics of Caesar and to proclaim instead the politics of Jesus. So in our digital Bible study, I offer direction on how we could, as a church, step into the power of prayer to shape the world and step into our calling as witnesses in the form of a protest. Now, I realize there's a lot of public discourse going on right now about protests, and I've heard the complaints. On the one hand, that simply protesting doesn't do much good, and complaints on the other that if all we do is stoke the fires of protests, then we're going to devolve into that bitter, angry resentment that resists any form of power or authority, even when it's there for our good. Yet this summer has demonstrated that the rich history of peaceful protests is in fact possible. One thinks from Gandhi to MLK, all the way to actions by football stars like Colin Kaepernick, to the global marches that happened this summer, there has been a resurgence of the realization that as we experience injustice, it is possible for people gathered together in democratic societies to publicly and peacefully resist policies that are harming the communal good. This past summer, I was moved to see how Christians joined in public peaceful marches, but also started to organize some of their own faithful expressions, several of which I saw were called prayer protests. Here's what I love about the power of a prayer protest that I think aligns powerfully with the politics of Jesus described in the book of Revelation. To protest is a right of a democratic people in the freedom of speech and the freedom to assemble. It doesn't necessarily make it effective, nor does it always necessarily make a protest good. But it is one of the more powerful forms of politics that is a privilege of a democratic society to resist and call out injustices as they're experienced as harming the common good. A prayer protest, however, is distinct in that it insists the true power for all government actually comes from God. Prayer protests recognize that for God to move, God's people must first pray as we attempt to align as witnesses to the work of God in the world. So to pray as you protest resists even the idea that a human-formed government can truly enact justice, but instead rightly insists that it is ultimately God who will come, judge, and restore all things. Yet we still have a part to play. We must be the witnesses who proclaim the politics of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. We must be the witnesses that announce the good news of the gospel that resists all form of injustice. And we must be the witnesses that cry out with even more prayer when we see oppression, when we see abuse, when we see harm being done to the cities and communities we find ourselves in. In a prayer protest, we get to embody two radical forms of politics. One is the dependence on our heavenly king, who we believe hears and responds to the prayers and requests of his people. God may move slowly and beyond our control. We may grow fearful, but surely our protests of abortion, our protests of racism, our protests of wealth inequity and inequality and abuse, all of these protests must first be offered in prayer. However, secondly, our prayer protest believes that while prayers are sent before the throne, we can even now act in embodied ways to peacefully demonstrate our solidarity with and our resistance to the policies of injustice that we are protesting. That is why marches are so effective. That is why the civil rights movement of the 1960s was so powerful. Everybody that marched in the streets represented not just themselves, but the souls of those who had been oppressed. 
those who had been enslaved. It was like each person, black or otherwise, was using their body to embody a vote of resistance. And those votes eventually grew so powerful they could no longer be ignored. So the idea simply is that anywhere from your small group to your church can gather for a prayer protest. Maybe you gather together stories of the oppression you're protesting beforehand. You pray together as a community. You hear the stories of the oppressed. You together communally embody your witness against these injustices. But then you place your hope for all power and redemption in the working of God as you march to embody those prayers and to embody the people you're representing as a public sign to your community, as a public witness. Imagine if even your small group were to gather, listen, pray, and walk the streets of your neighborhood. Walk a particularly dangerous or broken or vulnerable area of your city. Walk with prayer and trust, perhaps worshiping or praying silently or gathering at a certain place of pain and calling out for God to act. That would be extremely political, but it would be done as the church, proclaiming the politics of Jesus even as we sought to influence the politics of Caesar on the left and the right. It would resist the politics of fear while still placing our trust in a higher power than human authority. There's lots of needs such prayer protests could address. Racism, certainly. I've seen marches, respectfully and prayerfully, protesting abortion. But what if we could also protest housing inequality, environmental sustainability, or any host of other issues? Not simply to protest for protest's sake, but to prayerfully witness to the politics of Jesus in a tangible way. Maybe the place to start is this. Where do you feel a political burden? What injustices do you see around you? What stories have you heard? What prayers do you need to offer as a fragrant aroma that rise before the throne? Where is God calling you to witness, protesting against the politics of fear by offering an embodied protest of hope? Where is God waiting for you to pray, waiting for those prayers to gather up around the throne, waiting for the pleasing aroma of prayers born from pain to cause the angel to tip the censer and finally pour out God's response. Fears are all around us. There is much beyond our control. But the one who raised Jesus from the dead is the same who seals us by his spirit and listens to our cries. May we protest and may we pray as witnesses to the one who is to come and who will make all things new again. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. 